Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. That doesn't sound good. Paper shredder's jammed, but I think I fixed it. Oh, well, try shredding these $50 bills then. Seems like it's working. Mm, better try another 400 bucks. Instead of using money, use regular paper. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter and Instagram at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. Hello, lit listeners. I hope you're all geared up to party with the bands in this episode's rock novel, because we've got a backstage pass and VIP access. Sarah Priscus is here to talk about her new novel, Groupies, a story that shines a light on the grungy yet plenary world of 1970s Los Angeles rock and roll. Later... Who else is better qualified to give real-world context to this very topic than the fabulous supergroupie, member of Frank Zappa's GTOs, and talented writer and podcaster Pamela Day Barr? That's right. Miss Pamela herself joins me during the last segment of the show, so break out your groovy boas and hot pants, and drop some far-out vinyl on the turntable. You're all with the band tonight. Let's get this party started with Sarah Priscus. Sarah is a 2021 graduate of the University of Ottawa, where she studied English and theater. She has written for Electric Literature, Literary Hub, and her short stories have been nominated for or won the Pushcart Prize, Best of the Net, Best Small Fictions, and the Wigleaf Top 50. And she's only 23. Groupies, published by William Morrow and Company in 2022, is her debut novel. Thanks for coming on the show, Sarah. Oh, thank you for having me, Christy. I'm really excited. I am too. I love the topic. As I said earlier, Groupies is set during the late 70s, primarily in Los Angeles, which was a time and place where some of the best music of the 20th century was made. I mean, music that's become part of the classic rock stable. Now, I know you weren't even born then, 
So I'm curious to find out if some of the songs and artists mentioned in the novel are among your favorites. So let's play a set of five questions and find out. What's the first album or record you bought? Keep in mind, I am 23, so I think it was um, a little bit longer by the Jonas Brothers. Their sophomore album, no less. Okay. Um, I don't know. I was like eight, probably. The first like non-Jonas Brothers album I bought was probably like, I don't know, probably like Vampire Weekend, Modern Vampires of the wow. City. Wow. All I right. I high school. I was like, oh, I'm very, I'm very alternative, very cool. I have to own this. So yeah, I do still like both of those bands, but um, uh, not quite as much either one anymore. And for very different reasons. They're not on the same playlist, but they could be. Has music been a big part of your life all your life? As a kid, I listened to whatever my parents were listening to. So mostly just like David Bowie and ABBA, um, which is fun. And I still listen to both those artists. So maybe that is a kind of an influential thing. Uh, you know, through through middle school, I got really into musical theater, which there's music in that, but it's not really the same. And then once I got a little older, I got back into like music culture and being really into bands and old bands and undiscovered things. And that's fun. So I, I've always been really into music, I guess, in different ways, um, but I've never been a musician. When you were growing up, were you going to concerts? I mean, what was your most memorable live music experience? Yeah, that's a good question. So my first um, kind of big, like, well, it was a little festival, but to me it was big. Um, I went to, it was like the, it's called City Folk now. It was called Folk Fest. It's in Ottawa. And I went in, I guess it must have been 2015. And I saw Lord on her, mm. she was touring her first album, Pure Heroine. And I was really, really into Lord, as many gals my age were. I stood there for hours, like at the barricade, waiting and waiting and waiting. Very exciting, very fun. And then when she finally came on, it started pouring rain. But she kept going. She kept performing and it was very fun. It felt very communal and magical. And nice. I think that was like the first moment where I really felt like the magic of a concert. as we always kind of yearn for. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. But Well, I know that you got it because it comes through in your writing in groupies, which we'll talk about later. Thank but you. All right. So if you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, who would it be? And what's one question you would ask? Okay. This one is a little low stakes, but I, I, will, I will not be happy unless I find out the answer to this one day. So ABBA. Okay. In their song, Our Last Summer, the premise of the song is basically reminiscing about a love long gone that, you know, it was like a summer fling, blah, blah, blah. And then the bridge, uh, they start singing about kind of all the things that have changed about the person they were in love with. You know, uh, they say something like, and now you're working in a bank, a family man, a football fan, and your name is Harry. <laughs> but this is a problem for me because if the whole premise of the bridge is stuff that has changed about him, why would they include his name? Because why would that have changed? And I don't know. Like, I think I'm thinking about it too hard. That's interesting. But I need answers. Like, desperately, it bothers me every time. And now you're working in a bank, a family man, a football fan. Your name is Harry. How dull it seems. Yet you're the hero of my 
You've ruined my evening for me. Now I'm just going to be thinking about that. It's a head scratcher. I have to get like Benny and Bjorn on the phone. I don't have their number, but if I like try enough random numbers, maybe I'll reach them. Possibly. You know, uh, like I said, when I have more free time, I'll just start. Yeah, which which you have none of right now, I'm guessing. No, not really. Do you have time to listen to music? What's on your playlist now? Okay, I do listen to music whenever I'm doing anything else. So that is one thing that never kind of falters. Um, I've been listening to a lot of like the Mamas and the Papas recently. Nice. It feels like a very a very November band to me. I can't explain it. Yeah. It just feels very cozy. Um, listening to a lot of the replacements. Uh, I'm really obsessed with their song Bastards of Young right now. It just gets me going. Gets me riled up. Uh, what else? Listening to a lot of like SZA, which is new for me. I kind of missed the SZA hype train and here I am jumping on as it's already you know, it's, it's, it hasn't come and gone, but I feel really late to the party. I'm later than you are because I haven't even heard of SZA. It's like kind of like pop R&B, very light, kind of twinkly, fun. It's like very nice to have on in the background. It's very, it's not ambient, but it, it makes good ambient noise, even though it's not ambient, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And like, what else? Um, I'm always listening to Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, <laughs> I'm always listening to like Fleetwood Mac. Just yeah. classic, classic stuff in the rotation. And I mean, I would, now I, now I have to say it. I am listening to a lot of like Glee covers recently, like, and I'm telling myself it's ironic. <laughs> um, I don't know why, like, they're not good. <laughs> like, they're not good, but like, that's why I'm listening to them because I find them like entertaining. Okay. Sometimes there's a real gem. It's bad. It's nothing like the actual songs. And I, probably should just listen to those but it's something it's so funny to like listen to the glee cast version of something i don't know like, like I, ear candy i have no answers for you oh, yeah i am just yeah i'm just like getting like less less cool by the second but that's okay <laughs> one more in this round which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity i think simon and garfunkel Susie quattro also said Simon oh and Garfunkel. You're in good company. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Oh, well, okay. Well, phew. I, <laughs> oh, at least someone else thinks it. I just want to know what happened. You know, I just want to know really, really, really what happened yep. to make them, you know, go from old friends to nothing. It's so mysterious. I don't know. Maybe like a fictionalized version a la Daisy Jones and the Six. Like just reimagine it so you can fill in the gaps. But yeah, I would read that in a heartbeat. I'm just so desperate for answers. Or if they wrote a whole book about that ABBA song, I guess I would read that too <laughs> for the answers. But Well, if two cool people are, are looking for a rock novel featuring Simon and Garfunkel, I think somebody out there needs to write it. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Sarah Priscus. And make sure you stick around to hear Pamela DeBar share her memories of her groupie heyday in L.A. in the 60s and 70s. Back in a moment. Sarah Priscus, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only. Right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. Oh yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right and they're a little too far away and oh, now they're running and we're both asking ourselves is it worth it to run instead of just you know letting them open their own door but still it's the right thing to do so get options based on your needs with progressives name your price tool progressive casualty insurance company affiliates and third-party insurers comparison rates not available in all states or situations prices vary based on how you buy we're back with sarah priscus whose debut novel groupies is the focus of this episode first of all huge congrats on the book Oprah Daly named it one of the 15 standout historical fiction books to read this year. Not too shabby for your first effort. So what has this journey been like and how are you doing now? Because I know how hard bringing out a new book is on the nervous system. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a journey, as you said. 
it's been really enjoyable. Like I'm having a lot of fun with everything, but I, I am glad that the book has been out for a while. So I don't have to be, uh, you know, constantly working on it and, and such. And, you know, I liked working on it. I liked editing, but you get to that point where you're like, just take it, just, just give it out. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do it anymore. And usually when you get to that point, it's already done and edited. So all those feelings you're like, well, that's, that's fine. I got what I wanted, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been pretty fun, like getting to like hear from people who are reading it. That's always very exciting. Um, sometimes I get like little emails, which are very, very cute and very, very fun. And I always try to reply. And then I like take a bunch of hours to like come up with anything to say because I'm like, I don't this has to be really good. They took so much time to send this. I have to have so much to say. It's kind of like weird also for it to be out still. It it was more weird like right as a release day happened, which was in July. It's November now. Just because, uh, you know, it's that feeling like you work on something for so long and then finally it's it's like a physical thing. And that's very strange, but very fun. Um, yeah, I had been I had been like writing it, editing it since I started writing and I want to say first year of university, first year, second year. And I was kind of just writing, editing by myself for like those next few school years. And then last year I got my, not last year, my last school year, which was two years ago. I got my, my age and we worked together. We did a bunch more editing and then it sold to Asante Simons and William Morrow. Is it true that your agent sold the book two months after she sent it out? Yeah, that is true. I hate you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's where fantastic. You, where, are you getting, where are you getting the hot gossip from? I, I do my research. I've got some other stuff to throw at you later. But yeah, I, I saw that and thought, good Lord, that's just... Well, she's a really good agent, though. She's very She's very talented, so... Before we go any further, let's nail down the synopsis just to make sure everybody's on the same page here. So can you give listeners a brief synopsis of the novel? Sure. So uh, our main character is Fawn, who's, you know, like early 20s. And when the book starts, her mother has just died. Fawn has just dropped out of college and she has absolutely no idea what to do with her life. So she goes to Los Angeles to reunite with her best friend from high school, who's named Josie. Uh, when she gets there, turns out Josie is dating the lead singer of this superstar rock band called Holiday Sun. His name is Cal. And Fawn is very excited by this. And Josie is very excited to tell Fawn, um, especially because Fawn is a uh, aspiring photographer with her little Polaroid camera. Fawn uh, follows Josie to one of Holiday Sun's concerts. And when they're there, Fawn kind of immediately falls into the world of the people surrounding the band, including the groupies. Uh, she gets to know them. She gets to know the band. And it's all very fun, all very exciting for a while. Lots of parties, lots of drug, sex, and rock and roll, as you, there you go. would assume. And then Fawn realizes that some parts of this world are not that amazing and exciting. And some parts are very dangerous and uh, toxic, abusive. But by that point, everyone's kind of very deep into the rock and roll world. And Fawn doesn't really know what she can do to change it, if anything.
I know you've been asked many times why you decided to set the book in LA in the 70s, well over 40 years ago. But that question actually never occurred to me because I thought if you're going to write a novel about groupies and really delve into that subculture at its core, you must have to set it in that place during that decade. I am curious about something you said in an interview on the podcast Floored by Books about this, though. You said you wanted the setting to be distinctly 1977 and 1978. That's pretty specific. Why those years? I really like a lot of albums that came out like 76, 77. And selfishly, I just wanted to be able to like reference those songs and those albums. And since I was so familiar with that specific like two-year period of music, I know it's 77, 78, but you know, if you're listening to music, it came out earlier. Um, I don't know. I just felt like that was already the very small sphere that I had the most like working knowledge of uh, culturally. So I thought, hey, might as well set it here. Then I can do slightly less research, but I still (laughs) did so very much, of course. Oh, I can tell. I know you did. I think that's a great period to set this book because there was a lot going on in 77, 78. And, and you mentioned things like the Hillside Strangler. That gets a mention in the story. And, and I'm, I find that really fascinating because Kenneth Bianchi, who was one of the two Hillside Stranglers, raped, tortured, and killed 10 young women. But it, what's, what's really interesting is that the first three victims were sex workers, women living outside the rules society imposes on, on women and how they're supposed to behave, what they're supposed to do with their bodies. And it wasn't until they started going after girls from middle-class neighborhoods that the media attention hit. So I thought that had a lot of relevancy to kind of the attitudes some society took towards groupies and the characters in the novel. And then there was just so much going on musically in LA in that period. I mean, punk was starting to take off. Yes. Disco was huge. It really came up and that's, you know, big pressure on, uh, because the band in the book, they're kind of feeling the pressure of, you need to be, we need to find a way to be like really big and new and fresh again, or we're going to get pushed out by these newer, more exciting kind of genres and bands. And yeah, like that, those like new genres, punk, disco, everything coming up, kind of just kind of not encroaching on rock and roll, but suddenly it wasn't like this dominated space, you know, because before like, you know, you have rock and roll, you have pop, you have like adult contemporary, but you know, as stuff branches off more and more and people find their own niches. I don't know. There's not uh, maybe as many groups that like everybody is into in the same way. Like people get more faction and for a band that is comfortable being known by everybody, that is a very uncomfortable thing to notice, I guess. Yeah. That was also part of it. I was born in 69. And so I was a child in the seventies and I wasn't a child in LA. But I remember a lot of what was going on in the 70s. And, and that's also one of my favorite periods in rock history. And it's, it's that kind of, it, it's this most debauched era in rock history. I mean, yeah. coming out of that peace, love, dope ideals that devolved, you know, from the 60s that devolved into a much darker mm-hmm. hedonism that started with the Manson murders. And they get a shout out too in your book. Yeah. And um And then that 60s idealism was gone, but we're not into the MTV 80s where everything got slick. So I think you just picked the perfect time 
that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I just like the middle, the middle weird shifting spaces of culture where everything can go any sort of way. And that's fun, but that's also kind of scary. Like you don't know what really what's going to happen. Nothing's quite as predictable and nothing's quite as, things don't seem quite as inherently good, I think, in the 70s. People are a little less, like you said, idealistic. And yeah, is that a good thing? Sort of. Um, <laughs> sometimes. I don't know. I'm not a to make any definitive statements, but you're definitely bang on with like why why the 70s. You credit the basis of your 70s pop culture knowledge to the early seasons of Saturday Night Live. And that and yeah. that watching those topical sketches helped you zero in on what was in the zeitgeist at the time. Hi. I'm Lauren Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night. Hi, I'm Gilda Radner. Good evening, Jane Curtin. I'm Dan Aykroyd. I'm Gad Morris. Hi, I'm John Belushi. I'm Chevy Chase. Hello, I'm Bill Murray. This is Lorraine Newman saying... Live from New York, it's Saturday Night! When I first started watching them, it wasn't as research. I just liked them, and then I realized, oh, wait, I can actually, like, mine this. I can... I really like to learn about, you know, recent history, pop culture, but I, uh, I am like a Wikipedia deep dive girl, but it is a lot more fun when, you know, you can kind of enjoy yourself while you're doing it. So it's nice. We have like, you know, weekend update, all those, you know, I learned who this was in high school. I learned who like Patty Hearst was from old seasons of SNL. Yeah, it fills your brain. It's not just, not just comedy. It's educational content. Exactly. So what other kinds of research did you do? A lot of my research kind of went into figuring out locations because I have not been to Los Angeles, but I obviously wanted to get things right. Like I didn't want it to be. You've never been to Los Angeles? No. I have been to Los Angeles and I've never lived in Los Angeles, but I have been. You created this very realistic picture of LA in the 70s. It never occurred to me that you hadn't gone. That's impressive. Thank you. Um, So like, yeah, to like get that, I was just looking at like archival maps, but then also I was just on Google Maps. Like how long does it take to walk from here to there? Like how long, you know, I am very fixated on like those small details. And then I read a lot of like, like old magazine articles, old magazines. Um, This isn't a video, but I have like Rolling Stone magazines framed behind me because I'm insufferable. I see them. There's <laughs> Elton John. Yeah, there's there's Elton John. You can't see Fleetwood Mac, but they're to the side. And there's uh, Neil Young. Ah, uh, excellent. And then I also did um, a lot of revisiting of, you know, rock biographies, autobiographies, memoirs, and, you know, just kind of trying to figure out how people thought about themselves in that scene, how they perceived other people reacting to them. Cause obviously I've never, I've never been a famous musician. I've never been a groupie. I've never done these things, but I wanted to kind of understand from the, from the source vaguely what it kind of could have been like. And then I, you know, built off of it and imagined a lot of things. And I also read, um, this was before I was writing it, but I read, uh, I'm with the band Pamela Debar because you have to. Everyone's read I'm in the band. It's on my shelf. So yeah, that was fun. I love her book. It's really, really fun. Really, really just exciting. So many good stories. But when I was writing, I was like, okay, she had a really fun time. <laughs> Mostly. What would happen if someone just had the worst time? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
yeah, so I was kind of just using a lot of these things as like cultural jumping off points, like ideas, um, but I didn't really like lift anything directly from researching stuff like that. And Publishers Weekly wrote the following about groupies. Through a succession of vivid scenery and authentically groovy characters, Priscus plants her finger on the fluttering pulse of the 1970s rock scene. Let's talk about that fluttering pulse of the <laughs> 1970s rock scene. What was that scene like and who were some of the major players? I think uh, like brash is a good word and also kind of just bombastic. I think 70s rock has this very interesting vibe where every feeling you have like needs to be belted out in the most extreme terms possible. Like there isn't, there is subtlety, but a lot of the really big songs and exciting, exciting songs people are really into are very unapologetically hyper-emotional, I think. You think of like Led Zeppelin, you think of The Who, they're just screaming. They're just <laughs> screaming. And it's great. It's lots of fun. But, you know, it's a fluttering pulse. I don't know. A fluttering pulse almost sounds like it's someone dying. Like maybe it is. I'm thinking in terms of late 70s, L.A., rock, and in the novel, it, it, this shows up. We, we've got Coke. We've got heroin. We've got quaaludes. We've got pot. We've got alcohol. Now, I've got a glass of wine here. I don't have any of the other stuff. We've got the Riot House, which is the Continental Hyatt House. We've got the Sunset Strip. We've got parties in places like Holmby Hills. I mean, you kind of ran the gamut. You hit everything. these iconic places or locations and you know they kind of lingered in my head and I was thinking well I know this logically it, it would make sense to fit it in and I kind of liked like puzzle piecing what I knew and then I had to do research I mean like I learned about the riot house from almost famous I will admit it mm-hmm. um it appears in a very different way in groupies it's like less it's less fun that's kind of the summary <laughs> yeah. of like everything I'm like but in groupies, it's not as fun. <laughs> I don't know. In a weird way, I really just liked having Fawn kind of jaunt around to all these places that I haven't been. And that's kind of exciting because you get to do the research and also you get to just kind of imagine the whole the whole setting. I mean, there are places like the Whiskey and, and the Roxy mm-hmm. that show up in the book too. Yeah, yeah, the Troubadour. You know, all the things that I put into the book are just things I find personally fascinating, which I think is the most fun to write something, like most fun way to write something. You know, just entertain yourself first and then whatever happens, happens, but at least you had fun. Absolutely. Yeah. So shifting gears from real rock stars to the major band in the novel, Holiday Sun, groupies worship, and yes, I use that word on purpose, they worship Holiday Sun. So tell me about that band. What sort of band are they? And how do they fit into the very real L.A. late 70s ethos? A pretty good summary, like a couple of pages in, uh, Fawn describes Holiday Sun as kind of fitting between the Eagles and Aerosmith on rock radio. They're very 
not accessible, but easy to like. You know, they have a lot of catchy, catchy songs, but they also have a lot of songs that are impressive in like different musical ways. Um, you know, they're charismatic. They're exciting. Um, they have a very charismatic front man. And, you know, they all have their own different personalities, kind of the boy band principle. Uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, they're kind of uh, coming off their... Can you come off a heyday? I guess you can. Um, well, they started in 1970, right? Yeah, 1970. And, you know, they they grew and they were more popular and they got more and more popular and then more and more popular. And they've reached this this apex. And the only way, you know, they're like, we can just keep keep scooting along at this level. But if you hit an apex, eventually you kind of go back down again. Sure. And that definitely frightens them and I think is not the main reason, but definitely part of the reason they do surround themselves with so many uh, groupies who are willing to worship them and be very devoted to them and convince them that they are, in fact, still the best band in the world and the coolest people in the world. Because, you know, they have a like a deep insecurity um, about themselves, but they try not to show it in the most... Um, aggressive possible way you know we're not insecure we're actually super cool and we rock and everyone loves us and it's like sure sure they do for now um but yeah so they're kind of a a big big group of big group of big personalities and a lot of them have their own uh little little things issues issues (laughs) Uh, some bigger than others but we have our british front man too in cal holiday he's british born he's an american citizen but he's british born I love that you remember this. So specific. Oh, yeah. I love it. Okay. Can I tell you my favorite line in the book? Yes, absolutely. When Kent, and this is pretty early on, I think it's on page 37, (laughs) he's the drummer. And he says, hydraulics. I want my drum kit on hydraulic lifts. I want to lift off the ground like Jesus fucking Christ. Or John Bonham. Both. And, you know, I thought, okay, well, there's my Led Zeppelin reference. I'm good. All right. After that, you were happy. It was good. It was fine. There are a lot of Led Zeppelin references, too. I mean, early on, <laughs> Josie has a replica of a Nurses <laughs> Do It Better t-shirt that yes. Robert Plant wore at an Oakland concert. And, I, I, you know, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, I'm totally going to like this book. <laughs> Thank you. There are more, but I won't, I won't bring them up I won't because some of them come later and I don't want to give anything away. I know. There's just such a good, like, cultural touchstone like mm-hmm. you say someone likes Led Zeppelin you know a whole lot about them I love Led Zeppelin I love Led Zeppelin also and it's like if you like this you like all these other things probably you need In the write-up about groupies on Oprah Daily, they set up the groupies in the story, quote, no, they weren't just sex-crazed bimbos. They got a bad rap. I love that. And, and that leads us into the discussion of groupies. Mm-hmm. Getting into groupie definitions and rules, and I'm going to take this straight from the novel. Yvonne tells Vaughn, first off, if you're going to be friends with us, you need to respect us. That's rule number one. 
You've got to commit to the band. Rule number two, you've got to prioritize them. Finally, you've got to care. Kitty, who's one of the groupies, adds, you've got to give it all to them, your whole heart. And Yvonne pipes in after that. No, Yvonne says. You never give them everything. You keep something and you ask for something back. So Yvonne has some clear-cut rules. Um, That was almost like an initiation for Mm -hmm. Fawn into their group of groupies. Like, this is what this means. This is what you need to do. So where did you come up with the rules? The general premise of setting rules definitely, you know, that happens in Almost Famous, which not to keep harping on about Almost Famous, but I did really love it. So I had, you know, I had that floating around in my head, but the rules Penny Lane sets out for herself are pretty different from Yvonne's and, um, you know, for good reason. One of them is a guiding around all these other people and really wants to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Um So the rules, I felt like, you know, Yvonne wants to intimidate Fawn because Yvonne likes that she is in this very high social position. She feels very important. And, you know, here's this new girl coming in, like she owns the place, like acting like everything's so simple, but it's not. Yvonne knows that. It's, you know, to get uh, somebody to like you and trust you and want you around them is a very difficult thing. And it is considerably more difficult when the person you're trying to get to like you is like a huge celebrity who is everyone kind of falling at their feet. So for her, it's like this big achievement to have reached this, you know, uh, social place where she is very close with the band. And, you know, she's like, well, okay, Fawn, if you think you can do this, here are all these different rules. And, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty sensible, honestly, like not sensible, sensible. I wouldn't advise anyone to follow them, but uh, the idea of kind of holding things back and retaining your own sense of self is something she hammers in, but something I don't think any of them actually do. Yeah. I think um, in their own way, they all kind of break all of those rules. Yvonne is, she's smart. She's, she's smart and smart. she's savvy too, which is a, a yeah. bit of a different thing. But She's, you know, um, she really understands the groupy rock star relationship. To her, it's kind of transactional. Um, she wants to be, you know, a manager. She wants to be important. She wants to have an actual job in this world that she likes. Um, she wants to be respected. And she's trying to kind of, you know, foster these relationships. You know, should she have she has a romantic relationship with one of the band members, but she's like, I'm his manager now. I'm his acting manager. He's going into acting. And it's ambitious and it's exciting. And, you know, she she wants to be getting something out of it because I think sometimes for the characters that uh, they might not feel like they're actually getting something right. something back aside from attention and that kind of loses its charm after a while. But I love when she says, talking about the term groupie, it's a dirty word, but when someone calls me a groupie, I say thank you very much. No one sneers and says groupie unless they wish they were one. So she's she's got, she knows what she's talking about she here. yeah. And, and then I love this definition of groupies that we get on pages 76 to 77. Groupies weren't fans. They were more. They were different. They were rare. Groupie was a collective brush used to paint every woman seeking closeness to the band. Some, like Clementine, 
flickered into one band's world before bursting into another's, thrilled by the chase. Others, like Darlene, were in a band's world for life, bound by marriage or promise or blood pact. And I think it's really important, and I was impressed that you did this, I think it's really important to kind of, if you're going to write a book called Groupies, establish what you mean by that, but also establish that that term is kind of fluid. And yeah, yeah. going from this conversation about kind of definitions and rules of of groupiness, Mm -hmm. as established in the novel, leading into the next topic, feminism and groupiehood. Let's talk about that because you touch on it in the novel. Yvonne is interested in feminism and reads up on it. And she'll, you know, occasionally throw out Betty Friedan and or yeah. Gloria Steinem's name every now and then. Mm-hmm. But most of the other girls in the in the clique don't seem interested. In fact, they seem kind of turned off by it. Fawn contemplates it. The common perception of groupies is that they're the opposite of feminists. Why did you feel it was important to bring this issue into the storyline? Well, it, you know, it's the 70s, but, uh, you know, like second wave feminism, huge, huge peak, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you're coming off like bra burnings, you know, everybody is, it's uh, maybe um, the rise of like almost pop feminism. Like, you know, you had these successful books like Betty Friedan where everybody was reading them. Yeah. And suddenly you had this consciousness of like, oh, maybe this isn't such a wild, far off idea. And I didn't even realize there was an issue. But now that I read this, I'm like, yeah, this actually... I'm not too pleased with how things are going on here. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor No one's ever gonna keep me In terms of bringing it into the book, I I don't see groupies as like anti-feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't think anybody's like a perfect feminist and the characters in the book aren't, aside from Yvonne, like identifying as feminists, but they're definitely all doing things that in their own way are kind of trying to gain their own independence and yes. their own self-sufficiency, which was a big principle of second wave feminism. I think they, a lot of them brush it off. One of the characters, she's very young. She's 16, which is Kitty. A, it's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> don't yeah. worry. It's not a good thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she is really quick to say, like, that's that's stupid. That's bad. I, I would never do that. That's so silly because, you know, one, she's so young, but also, like, she's 16. And also, like, this is what she has. This is what all of them have. And, you know, if hypothetically they all were like, yeah, we're committing to being feminists and we're not doing things for men anymore, what are they going to do? You know, a lot of them have sacrificed large parts of their lives or kind of their whole lives to this, like, symbiotic relationship with the band. And if they break out of that, they're kind of lost, like they've lost their whole sense of identity, sort of. So, you know, when I was writing it, it wasn't lost on me that it's a group of women, like, like you said, like worshiping a group of men, there's this obvious like power, power dynamic thing happening there where everyone is very aware of it, but everyone's like, this is fine. 
But I, I think I think the operative word that you mentioned earlier was symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it wasn't totally one-sided. There mm-hmm. was something that they were getting out of it. And I love this quote from page 28. When the doorman backstage at the Troubadour calls Fawn a groupie when she's trying to get backstage, and she kind of muses, was I a groupie? I'd never met a groupie, but I could picture them, hungry-eyed, eager, and unafraid. It wouldn't be so bad to be that way. And that kind of crystallizes that dichotomy. That because there are there are people that can that separate feminism from being a groupie. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah. know, you're either one or the other. And but if you're and, and both of those things kind of come together in that one quote, hungry-eyed, eager, but unafraid. Yeah. And so there's a there's a a strength in there. There's a going after what you want that's in there. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's really important. Yeah, you're they're reaching for a goal that people say they shouldn't want or can't want or can't achieve and you know, it's not it is it the goal of the general feminist movement? No, but it is a it is a goal that a society, so to speak, is telling them they can't accomplish and that's kind of what drives them to do it you know you say you can't do this and you want to do it five times more I mean who gets to say this is what I I get caught up on who gets to say how women are supposed to express their sexuality who gets to say who's a quote whore what even is a whore and that comes up a lot in the book there's a Mm -hmm. that association and you're playing with that in a really interesting way that the whore equals groupie kind of stereotype. You're kind of playing with that. Mm -hmm. And that comes up a lot. And I think that goes back to this issue of privilege and power. Who is the privileged class? Who is the the group in power? Mm -hmm. They get to give that privilege and power to those terms. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, is that association of groupies with whores indicative of the sexism of the time? Partially, probably. Um, it's a powerful insult because how do you how do you argue against it? Like, what does it even actually mean? It's yes. not it's not a real definitive term. It's just something that hurts someone's feelings for doing something that is perfectly like you know it's in their power to do. And if they want to, if someone wants to do these things, they they can do them. Baron Wolfman took the photographs of the Rolling Stone feature story from 1969 the groupies and other girls. And this was like mm-hmm. really the first big story on groupies that broke in. And I, I was going to say a major magazine, but in 1969, Rolling Stone really wasn't a major magazine. It was fledgling. Yeah. But the photographer said about the photos, the thing I noticed immediately about these women was that they had spent a lot of time putting themselves together in ways that were so creative you couldn't believe it. They mixed together outfits of the day with things from antique clothing stores to create a real vision. They weren't appearing half naked to get the men's attention. They were dressing up to put on a show. So he viewed them as style icons and they kind of broke the rules. And I find that really interesting because it was coming at a time where sexual mores were changing mm-hmm. and the status quo was fucking freaking out about that. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. That's a really good, really good quote, and I like I like that about the outfits. I like that. I mm-hmm. think um, 
you know, it's the general principle of if I if I put on like a very complicated outfit with all these little details, am I doing it for my boyfriend to say, wow, that's a nice outfit? No, it's so, you know, similarly dressed girls on the street will say, oh, she's so cool. Look at her go, you know? <laughs> it's, um, you know, you dress up in a certain way where you want to um present like a vision, an idea, a concept. And you know, it's like, it's self-expression and, you know, groupies are doing these unconventional kind of unconventional for sure actions. So they're like, oh, let's, you know, let's look exciting. Let's look fun. We're, you know, doing whatever we want. And that's kind of comes back to the principle of like having agency. You know, if you can do whatever yes. you want, you can wear whatever you want, you can look however you want. And I think maybe part of the, uh, I don't know, if there's like the iconic groupie look, but if we're talking about like those Rolling Stone photographs, you know, you look at them and you say, I think I have an idea what she's all about. And that's exciting. That's fun. And, you know, I think it's interesting to kind of indicate with your, your outside, what you're doing in your, your free time or what's going on inside. But. And, and that's not to say there's not a dark side mm-hmm. to being a groupie, but there's not a, there's a dark side to being anything. Yeah. No matter, you know, whatever the, you know, avocation is or vocation is. But I do find it interesting that before that issue of Rolling Stone came out, the term groupies really was not common. And then after it came out, the term became this kind of code word for slut or whore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that again, I think that's just the dominant culture taking control mm-hmm. over the term, over the definition and, and then there were, you know, there were things like the pop novel Groupie by Jenny Fabian in '69 okay. that came out, and and then this, I don't know if you've seen it, the the 1970 documentary Groupies, and that that was sort. Of, Pamela is in that, and that I've just seen clips. Okay, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's really interesting, but like slut yeah. shaming became part of the cultural lexicon, which yeah. is a shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not pleased about that one, but right, right. It's interesting, though, for sure. I think um, it might kind of boil back to a boil back, boil down to, you know, we were talking about feminism in the 70s. And, you know, you look at the archetypical groupie and here's a woman who literally is doing whatever she pleases and is going against basically all of like, you know, patriarchal standards to the outsider. I don't want to dig too deep into like what's happening in the book because it kind of falls apart there. But conceptually, it's like, oh, she's doing whatever she wants. She's, you know, independent woman out having fun late at night, being wild and crazy. This is terrible. And this is a threat. So um, yes, she's actually, you know, they say like, she's actually a, a whore. And then we shouldn't respect her because of that, which is so it's just kind of like trying to delegitimize these like efforts for freedom and independence, you know, in whatever form they, they come in. We shall go forth from this place Proud of the things we've done Sharing the things we've won We shall not fail And we shall go forth from Now having said all this, there is a dark aspect of 1970s groupie culture we need to address, and you do address it in the novel. 
you touch on the whole issue of the 70s of the baby groupie mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. <laughs> and that was very real. Yeah. Boy, was it ever. Yeah. Yeah. People get very... So Kitty was our baby groupie. Kitty was the baby groupie. Um, and she's, she's 16, but she tells a story in the book that, uh, you know, the first big party she went to, I think she said she was 13. You know, writing it felt very icky. But then I was thinking like, okay, if I don't put this in, I'm kind of ignoring this very real, very large part of that culture at the time. And, yes. you know, it's, it's strange because often I, I bring it up to people because they'll ask, like, why is Kitty 16? And I'll say, well, like, there are actually, like, there were baby groupies. She could have been very, 14. She could have been 14. Um, be, <laughs> be glad you didn't have to. No. But yeah. uh, people get very surprised when I, I tell them this was a real thing. And they're like, what? Why? Ew, that's so gross. And I'm like, yeah, like, we we feel that now. But also, things like that very much still happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was important for me to put that in. And it felt it felt kind of, I felt bad. I'm like, she's not even real. And I, like, feel bad I did this to her. But she's not real. I also like this excerpt from your Kirkus review. The story is peppered with so many details from debauched parties and blaring music that readers can almost see the Polaroids that Fawn compulsively snaps. And although it's quite effective as a time capsule of the 1970s rock scene, it's also an exploration of obsession and a compassionate look at the women and girls many people would easily dismiss. Now, I love that Fawn uses an instant camera rather than, say, like a Canon or a Nikon Mm -hmm. or something more professional. It's like instant gratification, which the 70s was all about, that and excess. And when you're instantly gratified, it's easy to slip Mm -hmm. into excess. And many of the activities that promote instant gratification are kind of linked to unhealthy Mm -hmm. behaviors. And these characters are living a life of excess. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I always just felt like it had to be the Polaroid because – you know, Fawn is going around trying to impress people with her photos and I'm like, well, she's not going to be carrying around a portfolio. She's going to take their photo and say, look, isn't it nice? Don't you like it? And they say, yes, I do. It's it's instant. And that's, you know, that's gratification for Fawn, but also for the band, for the groupies. You know, the band likes having their photo taken and Fawn can do it at, like immediately. <laughs> My first camera was a Polaroid in the late 70s. I love that. Are they even made anymore? I think they still make Polaroids, or maybe they don't make the cameras, but they started making the film again recently. Um, There's like another brand of instant camera, like Instax, which other people have, but those come out as rectangles. And it is, there's something about the square. The square Polaroid is just so much better. I don't know. It's such a weird little format for a photo to be in. And I, I don't know. I just love the, the idea of you're walking around after taking your Polaroid photos and you find one on the floor and you're like, oh, I didn't even remember <laughs> this, but I, I took it. And uh, that happens to... Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Fun. She'll find a lot of photos that she didn't realize she had, um, which is useful for her. The, uh, the immediacy is something very important to her and just to the, the book in general, because I don't know, something about snapping a Polaroid feels a lot less uh, high stakes than, you know, if there's someone there with like a, not a real camera, but a, uh, you know, like a, like an SLR or whatever, like, oh, we're taking, we're taking photos. But the Polaroid, she's just having fun, taking little pictures. So she winds up with a lot of uh, photos of the band and people around them doing uh, some questionable things, some things they don't want to get out. And she uh, she realizes she realized that she's actually holding a lot of power in these little photos. And, you know, she tries to use that because she's like, well, I don't have any, you know, the band won't actually like get me what I want. So I'm going to going to find my own way of finding power. Yeah, so I'm flashing on Outcast and that song, Hey Ya. <laughs> shake it, shake like, it a like a Polaroid picture. Yeah, yeah. I read that you don't even have to shake them. We I read always it did. Do a thing. I know, but I read that it doesn't do anything. Well, now you tell me. I know. No, I've I always used me. to shake it. I've been, I've been shaking like, like my wrist will hurt <laughs> yeah. by the end. I'm like shaking it so hard. You don't have to, but it just feels, just feels right. It's part of the ritual of it. Yes. Well, on that fun note, I think we are coming to the end of this segment. Sarah, thanks so much for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. Keep up with Sarah at her website, sarahpriscus.com. You can also find her on Twitter at Sarah Priscus and Instagram at sarah.priscus. We'll take another short break. Then we'll be joined by Pamela Day Barr, queen of L.A. groupies during the 60s and 70s. Back in a moment. Sarah, just letting you know, I'm trying to get Pamela Debar to come on the show and be on the last segment of your episode. I don't know for sure yet, but I'm trying to get her. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought you might like that. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash when your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow. Just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. 
and you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. I could not be more excited to welcome Pamela Daybar to Rock is Lit. Pamela Daybar is queen of all rock and roll groupies. In the 1960s and 70s, Miss Pamela owned the Sunset Strip and was a rock and roll muse to damn near every musician worth his salt during that time, from Mick Jagger to Keith Moon to Jimmy Page and on and on. And she was in her own all-girl band, the experimental Frank Zappa-produced group, the GTOs, whose record Permanent Damage is now considered a cult classic. Pamela is also an actress. You may have seen her in the Sylvester Stallone film Paradise Alley and Frank Zappa's 1971 surrealistic musical 200 Motels, starring some drummer named Ringo Starr. She's probably best known for her hugely popular 1987 memoir, I'm With the Band, Confessions of a Groupie, which details her experiences in the Los Angeles rock music scene of the 60s and 70s. She's published several more books since I'm With the Band, including Take Another Little Piece of My Heart, Let's Spend the Night Together, Rock Bottom, Dark Moments in Music Babylon, and Let It Bleed, How to Write a Rockin' Memoir. For nearly 20 years now, Pamela has been leading women's creative writing classes all across the country. She's even branched out into the world of podcasting, hosting Miss Pamela's Pajama Party on Pantheon Podcast Network, which is home to Rock is Lit as well. You can also catch up with her on one of her intimate guided tours through 1960s Hollywood as she revisits the sites from I'm With the Band. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Pamela, for coming on the show. Thank you, honey. As you know, this episode of Rock is Lit features Sarah Priscus's novel Groupies, about mm-hmm. fictional bands and groupies in L.A. in the 70s. And when I told her that I was going to try and get you to come on and be the music guru for that, she just flipped out. She was so excited. Mm-hmm. So we're just thrilled that you could come add some real-world context to that very issue, that very time period. So. Great. Let's back up just a little bit first and talk about the 60s so we can have, we can appreciate that contrast between the decades. Can you pinpoint the moment or event that transformed you from Pam Miller from Reseda, California to Miss Pamela, Queen of the Groupies, as Bryant Gumbel gave you that title many years later? (laughs) That was scary. (laughs) I said, really? (laughs) That's news to me. Well, it started when my friend Victor invited me to the first, the second annual teen fair at the Hollywood Palladium uh, to meet his cousin, Don Fleet, Captain Beefheart, and um, Spam. <laughs> of course. Uh, and and he, I, I was very kind of nervous to meet him too. He was this big grizzled, even though he was only, you know, probably 26 at the time. And I was like, oh, and he looked me up and down and said, you're a gas. I wish there were more people like you. Wow. So that was a really great moment. And he called me Pamela. Victor introduced me as Pam. And Don Van Bleet said, oh, Pamela. I wish. And I went, Pamela. Wow. That's <laughs> my full name. Okay, I'm going to use it. And Victor called me Pamela from then on. And I went from Pam to Pamela. It freaked out my Beatles girlfriends because I got into the Stones at the same time. Victor turned me on to a lot of music, Dylan. And that was a life changer. And then and I had been over the hill and I said, well, this is Hollywood. It was really like a different universe from the valley where I yeah. lived. 
It was okay. uh, I lived in a very leave it to beaver type, you know, technicolor situation in the valley. Everything was sort of perfect. Uh, there was very, it was, it was serene compared mm -hmm. to Hollywood, you know, and, and, uh, but I was, I was, I was finished with serenity at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so that did it. I started hitchhiking over the hill or driving if I had a car and just hanging out with the kids in Hollywood. And there were thousands of them. Oh yeah, I bet. See, I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to pinpoint that moment in 1966 when you knocked on the backstage door of this club on the strip and got in to see the birds. Yeah, that's 1966. A big yeah, well, this was also, this was probably 65 when I met Don. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. So I was already Pamela. I wasn't Miss Pamela until Tiny Tim uh, christened all those GTOs Miss. Mm-hmm. Met Tiny Tip. Well, Miss Lucy knew him from New York, and we went to visit him. And when we walked in, he said, "Oh, Miss Mercy, Miss Pamela," you know. So that's how that started, and then it just stuck. And I mean, for decades, Robert Plant called me Miss Pamela or Miss P, and a lot of people still do mm -hmm. call me that, even though I'm in my seventies now. Girl, you look good. <laughs> you do. Uh, I mean, I it, can't accept it. I can't admit it. I, well, I admit it because I, I can't fake my my, you know, birth date because I wrote books about myself. <laughs> Not that I would, you know, I try to be very honest all the time. But, you know, it feels weird sometimes to, to think how long I've been on the planet. Mm. Yeah, but God, what a life you have led. Look at the people you've met. You were and you were Frank Zappa's kids nanny. You've, yep. You were hanging out with the birds and the stones and the who and early Zeppelin. And and then you and your friends formed the GTOs. And, and I have been singing the ooh, ooh man all afternoon. Just, you know, <laughs> in love with the ooh. Yeah, I mean, you did permanent damage. I love that album. It's a it's a unique record. It really just Frank was always wanting to capture moments in time, and he just thought the the bunch of us girls who were a dance troupe on the strip, and we danced with Three Dog Night and Love and bands like that, and um, we were a dance troupe called the Laurel Canyon Ballet Company. We called ourselves. And Frank just had started a label and he thought we had something to say because we were always gabbing to him. Mm -hmm. We always wanted to tell him stories and get him happy and excited. And, and, you know, he would pick you up off the floor and it was just so exciting. We loved him so much um, and wanted to impress him. So he could pull those stories out of us and we turned them into songs. Maybe I'm romanticizing that time, but it, it, I just when I think of the '60s and the LA music scene, it just seems like a really magical time. And then in 1969, you have the Manson murders, and Altamont happened, and it's like hello 1970, and we're ushered into this whole different decade with a whole different vibe. And speaking of the Manson murders, didn't you briefly know Bobby Beausoleil? Yeah, I made out with him. <laughs> <laughs> in those early days, I made out with people. 
uh, we he took me to the Golden Gate Park. I used to hitchhike up up north and hang out at Haight Ashbury and Berkeley, and you know, just mm-hmm. looking for really cute boys, and you know, going to the Fillmore and seeing bands. And I, he was just one of the cute boys. He, we called him Bummer Bob because he was always asking for money, and he he wore a beautiful top hat and a long coat. He was gorgeous, and he had a dog that he always had with him, a big white dog. And he was just, you know, one of the hippies up and down Haight-Ashbury. And I hung out with him a few times and we made out and, you know, he was just a beautiful boy. Way before, Mm -hmm. way before I met Charles Manson, many years, like at least three years, four years, maybe before they met. And I guess, I guess Manson had some sort of hypnotic, uh, I don't know, vibe that, that, that made people do things they wouldn't ordinarily have done because it apparently didn't, it didn't seem like his nature to do such a thing. Yeah. Um, he was a peaceful, he was a cute hippie boy that was singing in different bands in San Francisco. Well, did you notice that there was a different vibe in LA once the seventies hit? Uh, the vibe didn't really change for me. I mean, those were two incidents. Yes, that was a drag, but that was just a, the stones making the mistake of hiring the hell's angels. They thought it was going to be cool and it was anything but cool. The hell's angels thought they could just take over, but that's, that's why that happened. It wasn't because, Oh, everything's changing now. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. Um, And Manson was a fake hippie. He was not a real hippie. He would, he would just, it was like my, 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 one of my mentors, Vito, who I danced with, artist and dancer Vito I joined his troupe uh, not that he was evil like Manson but he he was a chameleon and whatever was going on he wanted to be in the center of it so he had been a beatnik and everything and then he of course became a long-haired freak uh, because he could gather a lot more girls and people around him and have more fun <laughs> and that's and Manson just happened to be an evil version of that where he he was not really a hippie or a peacenik or a flower person or any of that stuff. And he wasn't even a very good musician. So, so I didn't equate those situations with what my lifestyle was and what was going on at the time. What changed it for me was 73, 70, 70, late 72, 73. There were more hard drugs coming into it. cocaine, especially, which was just a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. It was getting much more prolific in, in the music world. People were dabbling in it in the 60s, Graham Parsons, certainly, and uh, me. But it just got really uh, full-blown and also heroin. Heroin. Uh, and meth and all that stuff started happening. And that's when and the girls got real young, you know, and they were interloping on my scene, on my world. <laughs> and uh, And I decide you know that's when i met michael and it was really great timing for me my ex-husband yeah yep yep you guys got married in 77 yeah we met on his birthday january 24th his 26th birthday in 1974 you mentioned the young groupies so let's stick with that for a second what's your take on that because you know we're smack dab still in the me too movement so what are your feelings about that? Are you uh, philosophical about it looking back now? Or or do you kind of, you know, because my take on it is this was a very different era, a very different time. And a lot of that was going on in a bubble. But, you know, I wasn't there. What What are your thoughts? 
Well, I was annoyed <laughs> because they had something I didn't have. I was still only 23 years, 24, you know, and they looked at me like I was an old bag. In fact, Sable called me an old bag right in front of Elton John one time. And, you know, I was in my early 20s. So for me, it was personal. And they and they came along with their tiny little bodies. And you know, they were little bitty girls. I'm 14 and 15. And yeah. uh, and 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 but it wasn't that it wasn't unusual in that time frame so it and in that world like you called it a bubble i guess you could call it that but that was just happening it was happening mm -hmm. all over the country and probably all over europe and i mean it wasn't just hollywood or anything uh, girls were loving the music they were hearing it you know wanted to be around it same like with me i met the birds when i was 17 uh, I wasn't ready to jump in the sack with them, but I, I wanted to meet them. I wanted to hang out with them. I wanted to be part of that world. And so did Lori and Sable and all the other girls in all, all the other situations. Lori and Sable just happened to be in my world. Do you remember the first time you heard the word groupie? I think I do. You know, I write about, I wrote about it several times. I think I remember when I first heard it was I was hanging out with Zeppelin and, you know, at, at the at, uh, Hyatt House, which we called the Riot House. And someone called me that. I was standing there waiting to get in the cars to go to the forum or somewhere. And someone said, oh, she must be a groupie. And I wasn't that was new to me although i've looked at i've you know i've scoped it out since then and it was a word already in england coined by a, a journalist um it was in okay. press before then but i first time i heard it i'm pretty sure it was that you know it's hard to remember exactly people's <laughs> people's memories get all jumbled up if as long as if they live a long time <laughs> like i have but i'm pretty sure that's what <laughs> Give me your definition of groupie. I mean, take ownership of that damn word. What what does it I mean to have. you? I, uh, yeah. Well, there was a time, actually, I didn't want to be called that because at first it didn't bother me at all because it was just a word that meant someone who hung out with groups. And that's really all it still means. Someone who wants to hang out with rock groups. That's what the word started out as. And they weren't all women. There was Rodney and Kim Fowley and a lot of different people who wanted to hang out with musicians because they were especially with dylan dylan started it was, he made lyrics important the music became much more much deeper much more important far-reaching and and uh people wanted to be around it they just wanted to be around that energy and the excitement of course the sexiness of it all and that's really all it meant but in about 1970 it just became more of a pejorative word. People, mm -hmm. people are still, especially in America, uptight sexually. They still are. It's so, you know, as if it has anything. It's none of their business what anyone does. <laughs> so it's it's always confused me. But for a little while there, I didn't I didn't want to be associated with the word. But that was brief time. 
Um, well, certainly when I wrote, I'm with the band, I claimed it, you know, I, yep. I said, I, I am this and I, and I'm a groupie at heart. And it's a very, very mixed up word, even in almost famous, which is usually it's a positive look at the groupie, which is the only part of the movie I like. But she tried to kill herself over some rock, which just pissed me off, man. So it's a misunderstood word. Well, I know you've got a bone to pick with Cameron Crowe, and he should have made you a consultant on that film. Yes. Yes, he should have. He tried to make it up to me. You know, there's a chapter on him and uh, let's spend the night together because he said, let me let me do something for you. You know, so he told the whole story of, of that movie in uh, Let's Spend the Night Together. A lot of people don't remember that. They, they want to read the groupie stories. But the final chapter is Cameron's, you know, story about making Almost Famous. So there's a, a line in Sarah Priscus's novel, Groupies. A character is talking about the word groupie. And she said that it's, she says no one sneers and says groupie unless they wish they were one. So when uh-huh. somebody calls me a groupie, I say, thank you very much is essentially I'm paraphrasing there. But yeah, that's essentially what she's saying is like, you know, if, if you're going to use that word in the pejorative, check yourself, check, check where that's coming from. I still at this stage of my game. Every few weeks or so on, in, on you know, Instagram, well, not not so much Instagram, but on Facebook, usually somebody just says, like yesterday, someone said, aren't, are you embarrassed about writing? On oh, my Instagram? God. About writing on the band. Are you embarrassed about it? Today, it was a woman, too. That really upsets me. Mm-hmm. I said, absolutely not. And I've written five books since then. So, you know, people still think. Oh, God, she admitted she's fucked people. <laughs> Everyone fucks people. If they're, you know, nine Most of us do, yeah. Of the people fuck people. <laughs> right. So I just happened to have sex and relationships and romances with musicians. And that, right. it's, that's, it's, it's so simple. Right. And I, I think, you know, the common misconception is that groupie and feminists don't go together. But I've heard you talk about this before, and I agree with you. I mean, if you are a woman and you're going for what you want, and think about in the 60s and 70s with the GTOs and and some of the other groupies, like Anita Palenberg, style setter. You guys, you women, style setters, rule breakers, rock and roll muses, all of these songs that were inspired by groupies. Yep. And, uh, and I, I'm really proud of the whole thing. And it turned sure. into when I wrote the book, I had no idea if anyone was going to read it. You never know that. I was one of the very first quotes, nobodies to write a memoir, um, which I think opened doors for a lot of people to write their memoirs who who weren't celebrities, mm-hmm. or big politicians or, you know, so I'm proud of that part of it. And um I was a woman doing what I wanted to do. When I did those TV shows early on, 87, you would not believe the stuff I got from people. Who yes, I would, because I was watching. Oh, oh, you were? They hadn't read it. They just saw, oh, mm-hmm. she's writing about her sex life, which is a very small part of the book, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, I read the book when it came out. I was, I think, 17 when it came out, and I got it. I heard of it when I was 18. But Pamela, I was watching you on shows like Oprah and I think Geraldo. 
Oh yeah. And there were, there were some, I remember one show, I don't remember if it was Geraldo or Oprah where Gene Simmons and yeah, that was Paul Oprah. Stan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Jackie Collins was on, no, was it Jackie Collins? Yeah. yeah. So I saw all that stuff and I, and I thought the question she's getting, come on y'all. She wrote a horrible book called Rockstar. Mm -hmm. She she just, she dabbled outside of her element, which, you know, she's a wonderful writer in her element, but she, I I reviewed that book for Rolling Stone and it was the only time I was actually pretty mean in print (laughs) because I ended the the review, you know, something's happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you miss me? Oh, snap. Yeah. But she was out of her element. She was out of her yeah. and it was a really silly book, but I didn't get to say much on that. No, you did not. Gene and Paul hogged it all, especially Gene. And he's a friend of mine, but you know, in fact, he's, he's helped me twice uh, with my books. He, wow. Yeah. I was writing on with the band. I was going to call it memoir of a groupie. And he went, uh-uh, I just got a confessions of a groupie. So he, he came up me. with that. Yeah. He confessions. Yeah. He said, that makes it more titillating. And I ran into him at Book Soup, one of my my favorite bookstores, local bookstores. I've done a lot of readings there. And we were chit-chatting there, and he said, what are you going to write next? And I said, I really don't know. This is my third book. And he said, you should do Rock and Roll Babylon. Mm. Oh, hmm, wow. That's, that would be a hard book to write, which became Rock Bottom, a book which is was very hard to write. It's the... It's the 25 stories of rock and roll tragedies. Yeah. It's on Kindle, uh, but it's not in print anymore. It's only on Kindle. I got a huge deal with that. It's my third book. And uh, the, the, who, you know, my, my editor, they fired him and nobody cared about the book, sadly. And it's a real, I think it's a really good, very well researched. I sell them on my website. Pamela did. Okay. So yeah, I, I I have to go find them and buy them in bookstores and stuff, and then I sell them signed. Oh wow! I sell all my books signed there. Well, speaking of on with the band, after that came out and you did face some crazy comments, I love this recent quote from your ex-husband, Michael Debar, because he said to a reporter when he was asked how he felt about the stories in the book, he said, I think they're actually jewels in her crown to spend time with all of those extraordinary artists. I think she gave as good as she got. Miss Pamela was very much part of rock and roll history. I think they call it a muse, don't they? And that's exactly what she was and remains. That's lovely. Yeah, we have a great relationship. He's like a brother now. Mm. We, had, we were together 14 years and have a son, and we remain very close because of Nick. We wanted to make him first, put him first. Yeah. And, you know, I love his wife, Britta. We're all, it's a really like a family situation. And he's, we're like siblings now. He's an only child, and so am I, and so is Nick. And we're, Michael and I are like siblings. I really count on him and vice versa. That's wonderful. 
Okay, so there are so many people that I would love to ask you about, but I know we don't have time. So I've narrowed it down to five. Okay. And I'm just going to throw out their names and you try and come up with one word to describe them. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Graham Parsons. Magic. I love his work. And I don't know if you know the writer, Dana Spiota, but she, I was talking to her and she said, um, because she wrote the novel, Eat the Document, she says she has tried to slip a shout out to him and as many of her books as she can. She just loves Graham. Well, I promised his spirit when he passed. I went to Joshua Tree in the room he died in. And I, I used to, at that point, I was channeling white light. I was, you know, I've done it all. And uh, I promised him that night that I would carry his music on, his legacy, and I would, you know, keep him alive out there. And I have done that. You have. I keep, You absolutely have. I keep doing it. I, I I wrote a you know I had a column at Please Kill Me for a while, and I wrote a really great if I don't say so myself piece on him. I elaborated on a lot of the stories, and I'm with the band, on in those columns, and um, he he influenced me in a way that I don't think anyone else. It may be Victor and Don Van Vliet because they changed my life, and so did Graham though. Graham sat yeah. Percy and I down one night and just made us listen to country music. George Jones, we know all this. George Jones, Willie Whalen, Ray Price. I mean, it was it was soul expanding. And he wept. He loved it so much. He would cry through these, especially George Jones. He called him the king of broken hearts and mm. expanded my music awareness and ability to take in. I mean, it was I can't, it's it's beyond what I can say. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. And his daughter, Polly, he asked me to babysit her. He called one time, said, you want to come over and babysit Polly? She was only a year and a half old. And she's my goddaughter. I mean, mm-hmm. my husband all this time. And so he also gave me that. Why do you think he's not more well-known? He was so brilliant. Uh, well... The Eagles came, you know, people took from him, took what he put out, and he, and he died at 26. Yeah. So he, they carried it on in their way, in their fashion, but I, I mean, what he might have done is just, I mean, of course, at 26, he'd done all that. He, the first two Burritos albums and his two solo records are just pure, um, and, and Polly, just did, just got a hold of some recordings of him and Emmy Lou in 73 that she did a GoFundMe for. Did you see that? Yes. They got over $100,000 to put this record out. To- oh, my God. So there's going to be new, a new record of him singing with Emmy Lou. Yeah. That's wonderful. He is adored and revered by really cool people. People who totally get what he contributed. And Hillman, too. I mean, it wasn't just Graham. Graham was the pretty, pretty boy who died. Hillman also, they were partners in this music. Chris had a yeah. called the Hillman. He played mandolin and all that pre, pre-birds. So they were very kindred musically. They didn't see eye to eye on a lot of other stuff, though. This I have heard. Oh. I always wanted to ask you, I'm looking, I've got a framed copy of uh, The Gilded Palace of Sin on my wall. Mm-hmm. There are these two women in the, the little cabin thing. Do you know who they are? They were just models. And Lucy okay. and I went, why the heck 
why didn't you use some of the GTOs for that? You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. we went to their, their debut at the A&M soundstage is big party, man, for the Flying Burrito Brothers. No one had ever heard of them. And they were members of the birds. So Graham was briefly in the birds. So a lot of people showed up and they were like, what kind of music is this? <laughs> <laughs> um, people say, so many people now say, oh, I was at the Palomino. And Mercy and I sometimes, and three or four other people were there. We just got it. We got that music, you know? Yep. Yeah. I got four more. Frank Zappa. Mentor. Keith Moon. <sighs> Tears of a Clown. Sorry, there are three. Wow. It's there. <laughs> that fits. Mick Jagger. Hot. <laughs> Good kisser. Uh, besides being hot, though, he was fun. He was real. He had a real light-hearted majesty about him that was that was uh he knew where he stood in the world but he also thought it was amusing same with robert plant they're both leos oh okay they knew where they where they what they meant but they also know who they who they were pretty down deep and mick was just a lot of fun he I, he's not someone i said oh i'm gonna land him you know yeah i just we were having a good time Right. Um, well, you know, I'm going to ask about this last one. Jimmy Page. Very mysterious. Mysterious man. Mysterious, yes. Whatever happened to the Led Zeppelin II acetate? Oh, don't ask. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was really angry at him at, some, at one point, and, and I needed money. So uh, besides the acetate demo, that he he worked on in my apartment with Robert. Whenever I do my rock tour, I, I take people to that spot and I say, there should be a plaque here. <laughs> you know, this is where Led Zeppelin II was, you know, put together. Anyway, all his notes and everything, I sold them for 50 bucks with the acetate. Wow. There was a newspaper Ooh. called The Recycler then. And I put it in there. Some guy came over to my mom's uh house and bought it from me and i i keep wondering where that thing might be now probably worth a hundred times that now be worth a lot a of money times yeah. more, a thousand times yeah <laughs> we'll keep rocking it miss pamela you are amazing and i can't thank you enough for coming on the show this is such an honor and a thrill thank you honey what have you got going on now i'm writing i'm doing a book now uh with Jane Petty, who is Tom Petty's first wife of 25 years. I've been wow. working on that with her for three years. <laughs> it's due. It's overdue. There's so much there. I had I, never written someone else's story for them, and it's a very different way of writing. And uh, wow. 
So that's what I've been doing. And if people want to reach me, they can go to PamelaDebarOfficial.com. Most of my information is on there, but I sell all kinds of stuff on there and to tell you what's going on, classes and all that stuff that I do all over the country. Yep. I'm going to Austin next week to teach there. And what else? Oh yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook and Instagram, my name. And and you've got the rock tours, which one day I hope I can get out there and take because that would be amazing. Yeah, I hope so too. I think you'll enjoy I know. it. I take you to Grand, Grand Parsons, the old place where Ian Hillman wrote uh, the second album. And uh, it's the brick. I, I wrote a song myself about it called Brick Pillars. And uh, the same brick pillars are still there in front of that. Yeah. Well, thank you again. This has been amazing. Thank you, honey. I really appreciate you being having me on. I hope I get to meet you one day. I do too. Okay, honey. Thank you, Lit listeners, for joining me on this season one finale of Rock is Lit. It's been a magical mystery year for sure. I can't imagine a better way to say goodbye to 2022 and hello to season two of the podcast than with these two talented ladies, the amazing Pamela DeBar and Sarah Priscus, whose new novel Groupies inspired the topic and the episode. I'll put links to Pamela's and Sarah's websites and social media accounts in the show notes. I wish Pamela and Sarah and all of you a very happy new year. Take one. I also like this excerpt from your Kirkus review. The story is peppered with so many details about debauched Potter. <laughs> I want to say potteries. It's just it's just that scene in Ghost, but it's like the porn parody. <laughs> uh. All right, I'm going to try it again. Sound production, take two. I'm sorry. So you can hear my dog in the background. It's all right. He's just going crazy. He's been without me oh. for a while. and He can't and stay he's a puppy. in bed. I won't. Yeah. Oh, Wait, <sighs> sorry. Okay, Wyatt. Come on. Okay, Wyatt. Oh, come, on. Come, on. come on, let's come out. <laughs> should I start over or should I just? Stay tuned for season two of Rock is Lit. Coming soon. If you're new to the podcast, check out the first 17 episodes, as well as the bonus material in the Rock is Lit vault on my website. If you're already a fan, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. A comment and rating on Good Pods is always welcome. Until next season, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. 
It never dawned on me how much walking I used to do until I bought a house in the suburbs. Like when I'd say, I'm going for coffee, of course I was walking. But now it's like three miles, and no latte's worth that. I find myself inviting people on walks with me, like it's a scheduled activity. This morning, my neighbor asked me what I'm doing, and I actually said, I'm going for a walk with Nancy. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 